Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between, and of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, and YouTube to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the Earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. And without further ado, please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. Matthew, how are you? Good, Liam. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How has your last week been? <laughs> uh, last week has been a bit of a trial. Um, uh, recovering from a back injury, so uh, I've been a little bit on the down low. Okay, well, hopefully today will be a nice stimulating conversation, but only in the psychological sense. Hopefully you can stay seated for this. Um, so let me introduce, joining us for our roundtable discussion, please welcome Tessa Lena and Riley Wagaman. Hello. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Um, hey. So <laughs> would you guys like to uh, introduce yourselves to the audience who, uh, many of which will be familiar with your work, some of which might be uh, new to your work. Uh, Tessa, do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, absolutely. So I am a musician, an artist and writer, and some people call me journalist. And I've been writing about the Great Reset and the COVID pandemic or quote unquote, since almost the beginning of the entire thing. So I started writing about in April 2020. And prior to, th to that, I did musicians activism, which brought me to research in transhumanism, which is why 2020 was kind of weird. And prior to that, I did many, many things in life. And I write as classified robots on Substack. And pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Riley, how about yourself? Um, I'm the founder of the Tessa Lane fan club. <laughs> that, that, well, that, but also other things. Um, I write <laughs> about... <laughs> I write about Russia-related issues with a focus on coronavirus and biosecurity at my Substack, Edward Slav Squat. That's pretty much what I do. So it's, thanks for having me guys. It's, I know, I, well, I know Matt's work pretty well. I follow him on Substack and great to meet you, Liam. And as Tessa knows, number one biggest fan. So it's great to talk. Yeah, I've enjoyed following both of you on Substack. Uh, Tessa's was actually the first Substack I found when I didn't know what Substack was, uh, but uh, somebody had shared a one of our articles in a discussion group that I was in, um, but this is a this is an interesting um, conversation. Um, so, uh, Tessa, where were you born? I was born in Moscow. And before we go there, I just want to say that I am a fan of everybody here. So we're kind of we have this little nepotistic club going on. <laughs> 
<laughs> but jokes aside, seriously, beautiful work. So, <laughs> uh, well, this is this is a really you know this is a really unique uh, opportunity. Um, I just want to point this out for the audience. Uh, our guests here today are a Russian living in the U.S. and and an American living in Russia. And so I'm in, I'm uh, in Georgia right now, technically, but yes. Oh, are you? That's true. Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm we can talk about it later, but yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, well, I, I guess I guess the point is, uh, people who have um, crossed uh, the boundaries of experience, and uh, I, I've been excited uh, about today's conversation for a while. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, at, uh, Riley, by the way, Riley writes under the name Edward Slav Squat. For those who um, who may not know, I, I don't know if that's been said yet, but uh, uh, yeah, check out uh, his Substack as well, uh, Tessa. Tessa, her, hers is right there uh, under her name. Fights Robots is actually not her middle and last name. Um, what? No. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, what are you doing, Matthew? I mean, come on. But you know, given the way the world is breaking down, I really, really desperately wanted to have this conversation, which is what is Russia? Because I, I, I don't know how many people know, right? I mean, like, you know, people think Russia and they think this – you know, very large landmass that looks like, you know, the the northeastern, you know, I, I don't know what eastern means in the context of a spinning globe, but this, this northeastern version of the U.S. fused with uh, with with Canada, except um, except that there's something different. And so I wanted to start off the conversation by asking, you know, what planet on what planet did Russians originate? <laughs> That's an interesting start of the conversation. Well, Perhaps it's on the planet that is shown in the corner of the screen there. So, and I think asking a Russian what Russia is, is... No, that, that's Earth. Oh, that's, that's where Americans come from. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, it's all complicated. I, I, I think that in actuality, we all have everything in us. And at some point, and I, I know that I'm going into the woods here, but I was doing research into something entirely unrelated. And uh, there's a theory that at some point there were, I think, seven clan mothers in the entire Europe. So, and from there, everything sprouted and people populated the entire planet. So we're probably all related and we're from the same planet in that sense. Okay, so was the Russian clan, is that like reptilians or like big gray alien? Big we're gray off aliens? to a very, good, a very good and interesting start here, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> So well, this is this is you know, and I ask these questions because you know this there's sort of a cartoonish American perspective left over from the Cold War. And I'd be curious to know, you know, what is the corresponding impression of of Americans, you know, in Russia? But we we do have this leftover cartoonish, uh, you know, impression, right? And and it's been more recently ratcheted up again, in order to um, I don't know I, I don't market. Uh, uh, conflict. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a, a better way to put it, but it feels like um, you know marketing conflict is is the thing to do to to sell newspapers. Newspapers still existed, um, but but there's it, 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 it's just become weird again, and and that's part of the reason I wanted to to bring the two of you in to have this conversation. Yeah, I really love the phrase marketing conflict because I think you nailed it. I'm dying to steal the phrase actually because I think it's, it's a really accurate phrase. But in all honesty, I'll just tell a small story. When I was a kid, and I mean a, a kid like, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old, and our genius teacher decided to tell us that Americans 
were dying to shoot a missile, a nuclear missile at us. At, and it could happen at any point of day or night. And up until that point, I didn't think about it at all. But then after I heard that, I was just staring at the window in the evening at the curtain and I was waiting for a missile to come in and kill us all. So I think that kind of falls on, under marketing conflict. So back in the day, during the time of Cold War, maybe after, you know, some people carried it over, there was an idea that in Russia, in the Soviet Union, that America is this foreign land where it's all about greed and the homeless people and drug addicts and prostitutes in the street and it's all ugly. While here, we're the freest country in the world, it's all about friendship and camaraderie and helping each other and good values. And there's probably there was a mirror reflection of that in America, I assume, because then when I came here, I talked to people and they told me that it was more or less the same, just the mirror. And then all of that was forgotten and we all left and everybody said, oh, people were so stupid to believe politicians about this Cold War and it was obviously so idiotic and so grotesque and so nonsensical. And here we go. <laughs> we're kind of in the same spot and they have a nuclear attack ads the fresh ones that are coming out. So it's quite fascinating. It, it might be interesting to watch the the PSA that was just put out in the state of New York or oh, yeah. the city of New York. I, I, I It's really raised some alarms, but uh, they, I don't think they're implying that Russia has anything to do with it. I did, however, find Planet Russia. Uh, I just wanted to share that. I think, Matthew, this might answer your question. Okay, okay. <laughs> we'll, figure, we'll figure out what star system that's uh, hovering around and 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 how they got here by got to be Andromeda what kind of uh, propulsion mechanisms. Um, but it's interesting because what you just described very much sounds like and and keep in mind I was born I think after the Cold War officially ended that was 94, 90, 93, something like that where, where officially you know the walls come mm -hmm. down so I only have my and I'm a Canadian but the Americanized story seems exactly the same as what you just said, just in reverse. So what you described about Russia, that's sort of how I more or less was brought up. Uh, I don't know if that's that was Riley and Matthew's experience as well. Yeah, sort of, but not not entirely. I mean, you know, we were definitely told that there was risk of nuclear conflict and people would talk about it in elementary school at the lunchroom table. <laughs> Riley, I don't know how old you are. Were, were, were you growing when you were growing up? Were people still talking about nuclear war at the elementary school lunchroom table? The Liam Duncan Omni Man. No, I wasn't growing up during the Cold War. What are you guys thinking? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was born in '87, so I totally missed that stuff. I mean, okay. you know, I'm um, when I was growing up, I don't think anyone even was even talking about Russia. Right? It was just like. No one, I think a lot of, at least, you know, when I was a little kid in Southern California. Yeah, that's kind of what I suspected. I, I haven't had enough conversations with, with uh, you know, people born in your decade to know, you know, after the Berlin Wall fell and after, uh, you know, the transition from uh, uh, the transition of governments in, in the Soviet Union uh, to, to, you know, modern Russia, um, it, it, it wasn't clear to me, you know, whether or not that fear still remain because there were certainly still nuclear weapons in the world. But I think, you know, for the purpose of selling movie tickets, people moved to talking about briefcase nukes and uh, that, yeah. that whole uh, underground economy of nukes being sold around the world that never seemed to materialize. Hopefully that was, you know, 
hopefully that was more about uh, pressing the fear button than reality, but you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and move past the, uh, the cartoon imagery. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we were definitely sold this idea that, uh, that, that uh, you know, everyone on the other side was sitting there, you know, raising their children with like, you know, some sort of a toy with a button that said nuke the other side that, that the children just sat and pressed over and over again. Um, not quite, but, uh, there was definitely this, um, this idea that Americans and Russians were different as people. And, uh, I, am curious, you know, uh, uh, you know, Tessa, what you described is actually closer to the way the propaganda worked in the U S than I was expecting. Um, but of course, uh, the U S, uh, could always say, you know, Hey, we have free elections and, uh, and just sort of define freedom that way. Um, out of curiosity, can you point to something that that has been less free for you since moving to the U.S.? That is such a deep question. I think, well, honestly, both cultures are very, very similar in many ways, and they have different hang-ups and also the same hang-ups. And lies make up a big part of both cultures, and I mean collective, big long-term lives and i've been gradually discovering the lie element in both cultures it just so happened and i guess we are all still discovering that but uh well it's impossible to answer your question in a very brief manner so when i was over there again uh i remember the shift of cultures so when the soviet culture was completely discredited and everybody laughed and all of a sudden, everybody knew that free expression was good, censorship was bad, uh, democracy is good, uh, the Soviet system was bad. And it was also very black and white. And that the entire generation of my grandparents was entirely betrayed by the state because they spent their life depending, uh, defending the system that they were passionate about. And they carried that passion probably still through the fall of the soviet union because that was their youth that was what was important to them and they were told oh by the way that was all a lie and then they were kind of moved from the spotlight and that was total betrayal and it actually impacted my philosophical thinking early early on uh but there was a certain innocence in the soviet culture and granted it caught maybe the very 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 tail end of that the, the scary stuff was mostly in the past. You still couldn't talk freely, but most people didn't really have thoughts that would land them in jail. I mean, that was eradicated more or less. So, and everybody wanted to just live their lives and that warmth of the rural community that was still preserved even in cities where people have warm relationships and you can go to your neighbor, borrow matches or something like that. It was still there. And people would help each other. Like if you have to move, then a bunch of, you know, like guys would just from the neighborhood would go ahead and do that. Nobody would hire movers like didn't exist. So all of that and chivalry was very much present, uh, which is why I was actually kind of really laughing at the whole concept that Russian men are sexist, whatever. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, they were opening the doors and like doing things like that. So and maybe there's anyway. So uh so there was certain innocence and warmth of human relationships in addition to crappy things and to like envy element of a smaller community even in even in bigger communities 
and of course there was a habit for oppression and habit for suffering and habit for accepting that oppression but then when i moved here i had the sole expectations kind of from back back home as in i expected warm human relationships and and i was shocked and disappointed that it didn't really exist that much over here and i heard from people who uh from the boomer generation the, i mean like i heard that it was present in america too even in cities that there were communities and i don't know i've never seen it really but maybe it existed before but that was my biggest disappointment that the that famous propaganda talking point about dog eat, dog eat dog world in america where you're on your own it's, it's greed i mean there's some truth to that not necessarily on individual level everywhere but on the level of overall arrangement certainly is true and then another thing over there especially during the soviet union everybody had an apartment by the time i was around so you didn't really have to worry about it over here of course that's an entirely different situation people have to worry and it adds to stress and anxiety and the entire hamster wheel so there are many many differences but then on the other side on the other hand there are similarities in arrogance for example let's say arrogance toward older cultures arrogance toward uh like peasantry because for example in the soviet union uh way 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 before my time there would be a situation where educated city folk would be sent to villages to teach peasants how to farm and like to teach them and like to tell them okay no no no, no you don't do this you, you have to do this because that's science which is very similar to today's vibe well everywhere including here but so this shared western arrogance towards like intuitive wisdom and nature and all those lofty things i think it's shared between cultures just like environmental abuses were shared between cultures so it's all i don't know if i answered your question because i went very far into the woods but something like that you said a lot of things that i think are are really important and and uh i want to turn one of those um to riley it, what you said about about lies being associated with uh freedoms and lack of freedoms i i think is is you know rings true to me um and it, it's a complicated thing to unwind right um how the society's lies the the shared lies um so to speak uh affect what it is we're allowed to do and not do because it's when you begin to take a stand against those that you find out what forms of of subtle punishment might um be projected at you um so riley um i'm curious uh, how is your experience uh with with that question the the lies that control freedom of society how have you seen that change moving from west to east good luck riley i would <laughs> <laughs> you know i would say that um what i find I yeah i really threw out a softball right there didn't i, <laughs> I okay. look this is what i would say you know um I don't think, you know, I'm quite sure that uh, both cultures are a lot, a lot of lying going on at every level. What I would say that was interesting about um, when I moved to Russia, though, was I, I in, this is sort of a generalization, but I really do think it's true, that Russians are much less susceptible to just sort of taking authority at face value. So, you know, even if they don't put up a fight, 
you know, even if they don't openly resist it. Um, I found in my experience, and this is not just living in Moscow, but I lived in uh, rural Bashkortostan for uh, about a, more than a year. And it was basically the same there and probably even more so over there is everybody knew that, you know, power, the government, a lot of lies, system based on lies. And for the most part, a lot of people didn't didn't take these structures particularly seriously, um, which I really do think is different than in the United States, where there's still this sort of, I would even say, like, blissful ignorance in, you know, sort of the, the two-party system, right? Where it's like, my party is not in power, so it's everything's bad when, when my, or my, you know, and then when my party is in power, then things are good and I have to protect the system. But basically the system never, there's no, there's no illusions about the system in Russia. It's a uniparty, you know? And so everybody, people get it. And, um, and so this creates, what I like about this, it's, it's not a political observation, but a human one. So in Russia, you can sit around a table. You've met someone maybe 10 minutes ago. And everyone's just saying really salacious, interesting things about observations about the world and how it works and who's in control and, you know, what needs to be done. Topics that you would never in a thousand years, I think, hear an American talk about if you had just met them, you know, a few What's minutes ago. What's one good example? One good example. Um, I mean, I would say just... All right, let me think about this. Well, there's this sort of uh, anecdote that actually I heard on a different podcast. Actually, it was these um, uh, what is it? Russians with attitude uh, <laughs> podcast. Those guys are pretty funny. Um, but they they gave this one anecdote which I thought was pretty true, and it, it basically goes like this. I mean, I'm going to sort of paraphrase and and maybe m mutilate it a little bit, but basically the joke was this. So. Um, you know, there's a group of Americans, they're sitting, I don't know, at some Starbucks or something, and they're talking about all the problems, you know, in the world and how they seem insoluble, you know, and they're sitting and they're like hitting their heads like, oh, what are we going to do? It's so bad. And then you sort of pan over to, you know, this little kitchen apartment in Russia, and there's two Russians sitting there just listing off all the most terrible, vile things you could think of about all the worst things about the world and how horrible everything is. And they're all nodding solemnly. And then they stop and like five seconds go by. And then one of the Russians says, you forgot about the satanic pedophiles. And so it's this, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, Russians are just, they're just totally open to, to looking into the abyss. And, and oftentimes they do it not in a depressing way. You know, they're just like, yeah, things are pretty messed up. Like, let's go, let's go out and like fish or just hang out. It's, it's, it's just a different way of, of, of approaching and, and like, I feel like Americans still really feel attached to power. Like they want to feel like they're, you know, they want to feel like they're in control. And I think a lot of Russians know that they're not in control. And it just makes for better living. It just makes it so you can connect with people on a much more human level. In my, and again, there's going to be um, exceptions to this on both sides. So there's going to be Americans who totally get that they've been scammed, super, you know, 
amazing, open, warm. You can say anything in front of them. And there'll be Russians who are really fanatically pro-government. And if you say anything bad about, you know, the Kremlin, they'll get upset. But in general, I think this is true. So that's what I really found interesting about Russia is that I, I found that it was easier to get beyond sort of the daily just the the grime and the, the the cesspool of daily politics and just connect with people on a very basic level so you know i have a comment riley i agree with 99.999 percent of what you said except the word not in a depressing way <laughs> <laughs> because the, the classic well, well, is you know you ask a russian how are you and then get prepared to listen to depressing stuff for two hours okay. like, oh my god this sucks and that, that sucks and so i'm not sure about that that's a <laughs> great that, well that's another great example a great cultural difference because like, how are you is sort of like a greeting in the united states or probably even in canada it's like oh hey how are you oh, i'm good how are you i'm good too how are you? Are you good too? Yeah, I'm good. But then in Russia, it's like, hey, how are you? Oh my gosh, like I'm horrible. I'm about to throw myself out of a window. All right, let's yeah, go. In the US, yeah. you actually share your problems. You're the killjoy. Right, exactly. You know, you're not making the, the a connection because no yeah, one would United be interested in making a connection. Yeah, in the United States, <laughs> you're you sort of that? expected. You're expected to be okay, always. And I think in Russia, there's no, there's no expectation of that. But now, is that, is that really part the other way around, though, because I was suffering because I mean, I tend to, I guess, lean towards being happy. So that was a big problem for me because here yeah, I would walk in the room like, eh, you know, hey! right. and you're like, right. who is she? So, right, right, right. <laughs> like, What's wrong I with get you? That. How dare you? Yeah. Greta. So like, <laughs> it's just people don't people don't like happy, happy. I mean, it's it's a not the right way to say that but there's this element where you're expected to be miserable and if you're not miserable then you're kind of betraying your community you're sticking out too much it's harder well, they to think you're like mentally inadequate yeah <laughs> well, well I, so i wonder why i wonder so because it sounds like the the russian attitude pervasive as it may be of kind of a, uh, it's almost like a lack of naivete. Like there's an awareness, like you're saying, Riley, of the, you know, the, the, the way the world really works, whatever that means. That the US, Canada, the, you know, Western, Western nations maybe have, as particularly North America, haven't had the same, uh, we haven't developed it. Do, do you think that's due to uh, historical experience? Uh, for example, like Russia really seems to have gone through over the course of, you know, you know, you go through decade blocks of different regimes exerting different forms of control over their citizenry. Uh, is that, first of all, did I just utter a truth? Uh, and do you think that could be where that uh, attitude is coming from, that realism? Yeah, I mean, well, I totally agree. I think that Russians are, I mean, basically I've been traumatized by decades of the most horrible things you can possibly imagine. And having their, you know, basically being rugged by their governments on multiple occasions. But you should really, uh, I think I want to pass that one over to Tessa because she can give sort of the testimonial about, you know, the reality with that. This is such an appropriate fan club in every direction. <laughs> no, I actually, I completely agree with you, Riley. I think that's very observant. And, well, the truth is, I have a theory and I don't know how correct it is or maybe it's partially correct. But I think that, uh, well, first of all, by contrast, 
in the Anglo-Saxon culture and in, well, in Western culture in general, the cultivated psychological type and attitude has been the proverbial winner. And that has been very much at the uh, expense of like the indigenous people and everybody, you know, right now with foreign wars and all the murdered people abroad that creates oil prices and creates a good life. But there's still this uh, winner type, like psychologically, that is being elevated up until recent. And now it's actually being changed to the opposite, but historically in the classic Western culture. Whereas in Russia, it's kind of like this defeated indigenous attitude that has persisted for centuries. And I think that, that, you know, some people agree with that, some people disagree with that, but I think that it started originally when the, uh, well, the Slavic, the Slavic people were converted by force and violence to Christianity from older religion. Because as it usually goes, that kind of conversion usually is not voluntary. Historically, when you look at different cultures, different, different, actual different world religions, usually nobody was looking for that. As far as people, a politician, either domestic or foreign comes and says, it, it ought to be this way or else you die. So this is how it went. And I think that people never really recovered. And since then, like every ruler, like one after another, just like Riley said, they would come up with new ways to oppress and new ways to destroy the old culture and replace it with some kind of probable progress. And that would involve banning things, banning music, banning, I don't know, beards at some point, banning different things and taking stuff away. And then eventually they would serve them, which is essentially slavery, and it lasted for, for a very long time. And it was abolished only in 1861 in Russia. So around the same time, American slavery was abolished. And then interestingly, the dynamic that happened after that is that the peasants actually kind of recovered in many ways once the serfdom was abolished. So between the abolishment of serfdom in 1861 and say the, the revolutions, uh, well, both revolutions in 1917, uh, peasants really, spread to life and they started doing good and they have cattle, they have land, they grow stuff and they didn't really want any revolution. They were just minding their business and doing well. The workers weren't doing so well anyway in the world because that's just industrial revolution that destroys things. But so, but then the Bolsheviks came and they, again, they destroyed the village and they took the stuff away from the peasants again, which was, you know, number one million in history. And I do think that that traumatized attitude uh, is yet another extreme. In the West, there's this, this extreme of winner, even if it's not true, even if that requires violence, but you still have to win, even if you have to walk on, on bodies, it's, you still have to win. And in Russia, it's the other extreme where the defeat is somehow accepted and it's first of all based on experience because the you know the the the, the rulers were so brutal, but it's also it, it's internalized defeat, it's internalized trauma where it becomes a community value. It's equated with humility. Misery is equated with humility, and then of course, you know, religious customs kind of took advantage of that psychological quality. And in Russia, well, the official state religion was pretty tight with the state, as in government historically 
you know, they, they, they were rebellions, but as a rule, in the mainstream, in the mainstream vein. So how I perceived it as a kid, and of course, as a kid, I didn't know any of the fancy words to describe it. I, I was just observing and feeling things. But the adults were just incredibly, incredibly miserable. And they, they were unhappy. And the wisdom, uh, quote unquote, life is hard, that was considered a virtue. So you, 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 you have to believe that life is hard and their life was hard. So it's true, it was factually correct. Their life was hard. But then it's almost like this collective habit uh, was created where life is hard, life is supposed to be hard. And by even desiring life, that is not hard. It is somehow a sin, even in the secular sense when, you know, religion was banned, but there was still a psychological concept that is pretty much identical to sin. Like that's against the society, that's against the whatever. And the communists used that distorted Christian values. And I'm saying distorted because I think it's it was man-made, you know, centuries old thing to dominate people essentially. But so the concept was that desiring freedom desiring joy is not good because you're not you're betraying others you're betraying your fellow members of society by selfishly desiring to be happy or trying to be happy and i'm sure that many people didn't think about that in those exact words but their behavior their attitude uh was expressing that and i was suffering tremendously because that was the reason that was actually probably the primary reason why i eventually left Russia and stayed here in the United States because I just could not stand that constant misery. I was always sticking out like a sore thumb because I didn't want to be miserable. I didn't feel like being miserable. And it was just the community standard somehow, especially, especially among the older people. And so I think it's actually like real generational, generational, generational trauma. And the Westerners and the Russians were traumatized differently. I mean, there, there's plenty of generational trauma here too, even among the, uh, the, the the culture that has been dominant historically. But I don't know if that makes any sense. I try my best. I, I like the way you put that. I, I, I do think that uh, that we're talking about cultures that have been traumatized differently. Um, I, I, Riley, I, I want to toss that one to you. What what has been, you know, uh, can you add to that experience uh, or, or what do you see on that level? Uh, do you see sort of a different psychology um, that that seems that, that Tess is laying the base for there? Um, sp speaking of speaking of Russia. Good luck again. <laughs> Like, can you be a little bit more? Uh, well, sure. I mean, um, you know, ha having experienced, uh, you know, both cultures, um, uh, you know, how do you see the difference between, um, you know, the level or um, forms of generational trauma uh, that are, you know, passed down between lineages, families in the U.S. versus um, in Russia? Oh, gosh. The goal is to stump the guest. <laughs> I know. Guys, well, this is outrageous. <laughs> Look, I mean, I mean, I, I guess what I would say is, 
just thinking of my own family, which it, 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 in Russia, which, um, so I, I have a, uh, for example, my son's, my son's, my son's a great grandmother is from on, on the Russian side is from Ukraine. She is saw the earth as though had a very difficult life for probably most of her life. Uh, I think that she probably, like many um, Russians of her generation, would love to see a return to the Soviet Union. But it's a totally different, she lives in an entirely different world. So maybe a good way of, of sort of explaining this is just comparing her to, like, let's say, um, a Russian my age. So my son's great-grandmother, who isn't that old. She's maybe, she's younger than, I don't know, she's like 65, maybe. She gardens. She makes amazing dumpling dishes. She she does everything. And she I've never seen this woman complain once in my life. She, I think that she's been probably working with her hands in, in very productive and amazing ways, probably from a very, very young age. And then, you know, if you look at Russians who are, you know, in their 20s or 30s or even younger, they're totally different. They're, they're almost, in, just, in many ways, actually, they're uh, not too different from young people anywhere in, in sort of uh, the, de the developed West. They have their um, smartphone. They're probably playing some stupid game on their smartphone. They're going to university so that they can get a good job, so they can buy stuff. Um, they're not overly interested in, you know, uh, growing cucumbers or picking cherries. Uh, in a way, you know, again, I do, I do agree very much with Tessa that Russia really does, it's constantly ha haunted by its past. And while I do think that, uh, for example, the Russian government can be quite um, cynical with the way that it sort of uses uh, the memory of the horrific sacrifices that were made during the Great Patriotic War, or World War II, as we call it, the reality is that this is still, I'm talking about like more than 20 million people killed. Absolute, absolutely unfathomable for an American unthinkable it's a it's a it's a tragedy on a level that no that no westerner i think can really actually comprehend and this is something that still hasn't really been dealt with but what i find so interesting is that the the russians a lot of many of the russians who you know maybe not lived through it but you know grew up in the in the decades following it Incre incredible people incredibly resilient have been through so much you know these days though i feel like your your average young russian is not 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 too different than um than what you might find in i don't know paris or new york or los angeles so you, in in rural areas it, it's going to be more conservative but certainly in moscow and st petersburg there's a i i think there's in many ways there's not there's not a lot of difference among them
young people. Anyway, I sort of went off on a tangent and answer your question, but I'm just yeah. There is there is uh, some global homogenization that uh, has made uh, glo- you know the world cities a little bit more the same uh, going back and forth. But um, let's go back in history a little bit. Um, no, yeah, I'm so- sorry. Can I make a comment that sure. is relevant now? It might be less relevant as we as we uh, talk about other things. So Riley, you mentioned. I was just thinking about it. You mentioned, well, the, the tragic uh, people who were killed during the World War II from the Soviet side or, you know, died during the war. Amazingly, I was just thinking about it, despite the fact that that war impacted the country and every family so much. I remember even when I was a kid, it was still possible to make jokes about Nazi. They were actually yeah. funny jokes about the Nazi that were by the standards of any political correctness, they were completely just insulting and yeah. not good at all. But those were considered quite normal jokes that kids would tell and laugh at. And I still consider it funny, even though the war was horrible, but it doesn't trigger me. Like the jokes about the Nazis would not trigger me. And I don't know, Riley, if you're observing it right now, but I think that has something to do with the ability to laugh at things that Riley mentioned. So you, there can be very dark things. You can still laugh about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one one of the things that that I have um, a little bit of knowledge on, and, and I always kind of want to expand and think through, um, is you know, Russia, you know, Moscow sits in the southwest corner of this enormous, you know, nation <laughs> uh, that that is Russia. Um, uh, and but you know this this large land has a history that does not look like present day Russia. Um, you know, going back through the the longer history of Russia, you know, this was part of the Tartar Empire. And I, I'm curious to know, like, what what is the uh, you know what are the remnants of that? Um, who are the Tartars? Where did they come from? Uh, how do to do current Russians think about that? Uh, think about the the Tartars. Um, and is there any part of the direction that Russia took that related to um, the relationship between, uh, um, you know, uh, Caucasian Russians and, and uh, you know, the, the rulers from that era? Well, uh, I'll, I'll start on that. I think, well, for one, as a human being, strangely, if there's one thing that brings up Generation, generational trauma in me, it's the Tatars. And I cannot explain it, but the rape and pillage was so massive. And it, it, it kind of met the usual definition of rape and pillage. I guess that's how people usually treat each other when there's an invasion. And I suspect that most people living on that continent, or at least in the area of contemporary Russia, have some kind of a Mongolian or Tatar uh, blood in them, uh, but I have a, a, another story that is somewhat related, maybe answers the question to some degree. So I had a cab driver, and uh, I was just taking a cab, and the driver was clearly Mongolian. I mean, you could tell by the by the you know by how he looked that he was Mongolian, and and I all of a sudden felt completely just like. I didn't like him at all. And there was no explanation for it. I obviously didn't show it. I didn't say anything. But I just felt this resentment that was very strong. And then I, we started talking. And obviously, I was not showing any hostility. So we were talking. And 
and he said, oh, I am Mongolian, which I'm like, duh, it was obviously was Mongolian. And then he was so happy to find out that I was Russian. And he said, like, oh, we're such good friends and Russia and the Soviet, I mean, the Soviet Union, Mongolia, big friends. And I was just like, yeah, right. But I mean, like, I didn't say that and we had a pleasant exchange, but it amazed me that I had such a strong reaction to something that took place centuries ago. And uh, I think that it did impact, well, it, th that is considered a kind of a standard historian opinion, at least how I was educated, that that invasion played a huge role in the history of the land. And of course it made Russia more, you know, Western, Western cultures, Western Europe, had always and probably still have a bit of an arrogant attitude towards Russia, meaning that Russian the savages, you know, the bear, like the vodka, the entire the entire nine yards. So, and I think that stereotype largely may go to the time when the invasion by you know the Tar Mongolian uh, Empire happened, because it well, I mean it did change the course of history. So instead of me maybe going in a direction similar to the West, similar to Western Europe. Sooner, Russia was stuck as a well, colony, kind of, maybe not in the classical sense, but uh, to some extent, and perhaps it did impact the collective psychology, but also it was an invasion. So, I mean, like it was an invasion, a classic invasion with lots of bloodshed. So, uh, I don't know what exactly your question was, but I, I do believe that it impacted, impacted the country quite a bit. I was more, I was beginning an exploration because I'm, I'm still trying to put together a picture. You know, I mean, you know, the broad question is what is Russia? Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put together a picture of, of the entire world, how we got to where we are. But, um, but the, the, it is a little bit weird to look at the map and see this one huge empire. And then there's this 50 year span and then boom, there's this other very large nation that's, that's, most of the the area of where that was and to think you know well something happened there uh i wasn't taught very well in in my history books what happened i have had to go out and find and and do a little other reading um but to me in my mind there's a setup that i don't understand between you know let's say uh, mid 1800s and uh, the bolshevik revolution there, there's some sort of setup to this that i've always been curious about i feel like it's out there um and and how is it that Wall Street knew that it was able to, or how did it become involved in the Bolshevik Revolution? And and, and what was the interplay between sort of these changes of empires? And I, I don't even know exactly what I'm asking. I'm, I'm throwing a few things out there, Riley. I don't know if if, if uh, you have any input on this. I, I haven't even really formulated a question. It's just um, it, it, it's terrain in my mind that that I'm trying to get at. That's a typical Russian conversation. <laughs> yeah, it totally, it totally is. It totally is, and you'll have like two Russians coming from a totally different, totally different. I wish I could have something intelligent to add to that. I think it's a great question. I think for, and this is something that Russians will still talk about around the kitchen table to this day. Like, who was behind the Bolshevik Revolution? Was it good? Was it bad? How you know? Blah blah blah. The, the Russians are still talking about this to this very day. So, Do Russians uh, talk about Western banking influence in the Bolshevik uh, Revolution? Some of them will. You, if you want, if you want a good, uh, you know, 
basically uh what, what's the word well like a, a what is russia 101 course just take a taxi through moscow just like order <laughs> a taxi from one end of the moscow to the other and i guarantee that your taxi driver is gonna have some of the most interesting theories about russia and the world that you will ever hear you know i've had i literally had i'm not even kidding i took a taxi i remember one time it was just uh i don't know five minutes just to the train station and within 30 seconds, once this guy realized that I was American, he's like, so, you think the Rockefellers rig all the elections? <laughs> just, just like that. Just like that. And I was like, dude, totally. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> no, I mean, but, but he, I was, I, you know, and then we just started talking. And, and also, I'm pretty sure I was really drunk. And so my Russian was just, like, atrocious. But I was like, you have to understand, man. It's, like, the same in America as, like, in Russia. He's like, Vladna, Vladna, yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> <laughs> we really bonded, you know, in this five-minute taxi drive. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh I have, Riley, I have to ask you. So, and I, I, I do have also something to say to that question, but most importantly, are cab drivers friendly nowadays? I would say, I would say they're not, they're not, most of them aren't mean, and a lot of them are oh, quite God. talkative. Oh especially God. if they realize, especially if they realize that you're not from Moscow, a lot of them will will chat, will talk you up. So yeah, I mean, I think probably, I think probably the taxi, the the Russian taxi driver has, you know, some a lot of self improvement, you know, self development in the last few decades. <laughs> no, because I mean, like they, they were not very friendly when I was a kid, and I remember, uh, well, really, <laughs> the story is not related to anything we're talking about. I was a kid and then my mom and my grandparents, we took a cab. And then as we're in a cab driving to whatever, like the airport or the train station, I don't remember, the cab driver is sharing. He's saying that his life is so miserable that he wants to commit suicide, literally. Oh my god! And gosh. we're in his cab. So that was not very soothing. Even as a kid, I remember that. So <laughs> I'm glad that things improved. I'm so glad. Things are getting better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, building back better, but yes. Uh, <laughs> but but interestingly, actually linguistically, you know, perestroika, the word that Americans know. Well, it means building back better, essentially. It's mean, well, rebuilding is the literal sense of it. But it's kind of building back better. But uh, as far as the Bolshevik Revolution, I have to say that it was a shock to me to learn as an adult. You know, to read Sutton and uh, that entire theory about the Bolsheviks uh, being assisted by the Western capitalists and, you know, bankers. And that made so much sense to me because, you know, the, obviously when I was a very small kid, I had to read a lot of Lenin and that was a very rosy, rosy story about what happened. You know, the righteous, essentially the righteous Bolsheviks did the right thing and they just got the support of workers and peasants and they won because they were right which is all bullshit and there were so many children's stories i personally wrote poetry about lenin as a preschooler and i remember again as a preschooler when i was when i felt misunderstood by adults i would talk to lenin like people would talk to you know imaginary friends of god god or you know i had i was appealing to that imaginary image of Lenin in my head when I felt misunderstood. Uh, and, and I think it was pretty common because 
Lenin was everything. Every children's story was about Lenin with curly hair and his saintly behavior. And I started to read very early on, like you know, I was three or so. So I was just reading those books about Lenin and forming opinions. But then when I realized that Bolsheviks actually were receiving military support and financial support from the West to make their coup successful and even to fight the army of the so-called white Russians that were defending the, you know, the older system, or at least some version of that, that made such perfect sense because otherwise it was a proper coup. It was a coup by a handful of uh, very, very ambitious individuals who lied about doing it for the people because I mean, they were not doing it for the people, I don't think. They were doing it for whatever psychological reasons and desiring power. And then in the Soviet Union, the proverbial elites that went by the, you know, by the communist elites, but they were still the elites, they were living like kings while everybody else struggled. But then it made sense because I was thinking about it in detail. And on the one hand, you can say that it's so shocking that the Western capitalists would support communism, Bolshevism. Did they believe in communism? Did they really secretly believe that communist philosophy is better? Did they want, you know, communism as a, as a curse word coming from the West? They say communism, communism. And, but I think it was something else. And of course, I don't know, but my theory is that that massive land with its resources and undeveloped industry was a perfect colony. And what they did, really, they secured a colony in a classic color revolution sense of things. And I think that the help of Wall Street bankers, uh, you know, the help they provided to Bolsheviks was one of the first color revolutions, actually, in the classic form. And they, they were also assisting like certain uh, Chinese forces in China. That's another story. But uh, yeah, the, the State Department funded Mao when oh, Mao was sort of in parody with Shanghai Shek for people who, who don't know that. And the State Department acted like, oops, it was an accident. That, that was right. literally the way it was played off, uh, though, you know, very few Americans know that history. And, and prior to that, when Chinese had the revolution in, I think it was 1911, 1912, uh, Americans were also playing favorites. And so American politicians, or whoever they were, or, you know, financial interest, have been playing politics and color revolutions for longer than we think. And it kind of pisses me off a little bit on a sensory level that all that history that I learned and all the trauma that my parents and grandparents went through was a financial scam or whatever, like somebody's effort to make a colony. And I got a completely uh, bullshit version of it when I was, you know, I didn't learn it until I was an adult. And uh, oh, can I can I swear? I'm sorry. I just thought about it right now. Go on. So, Heck yes. <laughs> you can't swear, Tesla. I, I, I would not, I would not have noticed. I would not have noticed. So, Outrageous. So, but that was just that. They just, because they moved in, you know, the, the Russia did not have any industry really. I mean, it had a little bit, but not much. So all those capitalists, they helped the authority so they secured this relationship with the authority who they helped win and it could have been called communism bolshevism whatever doesn't matter 
What matters is that they had a relationship with the people in charge. And there was a system of planned economy that was put in place shortly after, where by, the, by virtue of having a relationship with people in charge, they could make big contracts, build their factories, make a lot of money, and have all this big market undeveloped for themselves. This is not bad from the economic standpoint. And then there were Rockefellers and the oil and, you know, Baku oil and all that. And they could care less about politics, I think. I think, honestly, even to this day, we, we get too worked, worked up about various isms, while in reality, people proclaiming very different isms work with each other very often. And they just, you know, share the bank run, essentially. Yeah, you know, th this whole question, um, like, why would the bank support communism? Uh, I, I think this one, this one feels weird to a lot of people, because a lot of people don't even really know, like, you know, what the banking empire represents, and, and what communism became, and, you know, the word different from, you know, the ideals written on on pieces of paper. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, banking, isn't isn't capitalism as in free market capitalism so much it is as it is tied to corporatism and this is something that that um i i'm curious to hear uh riley's take on on uh some features of corporate corporatism that have um become more prominent in russia but we'll come back to that in a moment but it actually makes complete sense if you think of um rising agitation of people who might be ideologically um anti-corporatist you know, and if you were to put a label on that, like communism, and then the bank, the banking empires would want to come in and cut that movement off at the head, install its own leaders in that movement, and let communism become something that is that is simply uh, one more colony, you know, sort of um, in, in the shadows, in the background, controlled by the same, you know, banking corporatist empire. And a lot of people, it, that's going to feel weird to a lot of people, but it actually fits uh, a lot of what we know about uh, about the actual path that uh, that Russia took. Um, and I think that something similar was done with both Italian fascism and um, and, and Nazi Germany. But uh, yeah, um, I don't know how far we'll get into that conversation. Going to today, we're actually seeing this this break apart. And I'm wondering how real it is or whether it is perhaps another um, controlled event. We're seeing the East and the West break apart into two separate economic entities. And I think people in the West don't really understand what's coming um, because the U.S. is so uh, used to dollar dominance. And just it's, it's like, well, this is the way things are. How could the world run any other way? We have the best system. Therefore, our currency runs the world, right? But um, in 2018, Russia dumped nearly all of its U.S. Treasury bonds, so no longer running its banking system on U.S. dollars. China has been um, dumping. It's become a smaller and smaller proportion of their economy and therefore bedrock of their banking system over the years. Um, but just recently, just the absolute number of bonds, they're, they're selling bonds into the market very quickly. And even Japan is selling bonds. And so now we see a new ruble, which is actually stronger than the old ruble from six months ago. Um, and we're seeing uh, BRICS nations, um, for people who aren't familiar, that's uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, but I call it, uh, uh, at the end, I call it somethings. Um, 
the BRICS nations are are discussing uh, forming their own currency, and and we're we're about to see you know an interesting experiment in the pain that takes place when there is no longer quite as free trade over those boundaries. Though people may not know this, but the BRICS nations actually have um, more sway over world trade. When you look at uh, how much each nation trades with the U.S. versus China, for instance, uh, for most of the map, it's covered with China, not the U.S., and it's it's different than it was 20 years ago. But if you add Russia to that um, and and the the oil that Russia and gas that Russia sells, um, it's a it's not clear that it's an advantage anymore for the West. So I, I'm, I'm trying to, um, you know, whip up an understanding, you know, and I don't have a complete formulated understanding, but uh, of what relationships there are between, um, I don't know, uh, the Russian government powers and the Western, you know, banking powers. Uh, it seems like oligarchs and oligarchs, and, and they're probably doing business that we never hear about and never understand. And, and I don't know how much of it is performative or not. Any any observations that might be pulled out of culture that might help us, you know, unravel some of those clues? Riley, all yours. Uh, I, well, I can't. I can't do. I'm sorry. I can't do the the cultural analysis, but I can give you my boring blogger analysis, I guess. So I um. All right, well, it, it, Matthew, you do these terrible things to me. Um, I, I'll just start with um, I'll just start with the ruble. I guess is a good place to start. So it is absolutely true that um, the ruble has shown tremendous strength, all, all things considered, um, over the last five months now. With absolutely, uh, I think I believe that the number of of Western sanctions against Russia have surpassed 10,000 at this point. This is wow. um, cumulative from um, 2014, but mo- most of them, or a lot of them at least, were were implemented in the last half year. Here's the thing about the, the, the strong ruble. Well, you can say two things. When I first arrived in Russia in 2013, uh, it was 30 rubles to the dollar. So we were, we were talking about basically, um, you know, the ruble is is not nearly as strong as it was when I first came to Russia. Let's put it that way. But that's not actually the point. That's not my point. My point is um, you can you can make these comparisons to, you know, how many, uh, you know, how many rubles does it take to buy a dollar? Doesn't necessarily translate into uh, purchasing power. And this is not, um, you know, a subjective, abstract observation. It's real. Uh, Russia, annual inflation, um, uh, about a month ago, it was past 17%. It's come down a little bit. I think it's a, it's a hovering around 16% or a little less. Um, this, is hu- this is a huge problem, especially for the most vulnerable uh, members of society. So uh, elderly people on pensions, been very, very difficult for them. Uh, and, and in general, I mean, many Russians, uh, if you have basic food staples that are costing between 20 and 50% more to purchase, you are going to feel that. And I'm, I will tell you honestly, from my personal experience, I would ask all the Russians I knew, family members, anyone, you know, anyone I could, you know, like how, how's inflation hitting you? 
every everybody was feeling it basically, unless you were just some super uber wealthy IT, you know, smarty pants living in the center of Moscow. Um, the Ru- Russians were feeling it, and this was in Moscow, which is the wealth, you know, Moscow, Moscow region, wealthiest part of Russia. In the regions, I have regions in Bashkort, uh, friends in Bashkortostan who said it was, it's getting ugly. So um, again, the pr- the the thing with the ruble valuation compared to U.S. dollars, the reason that this is happening, is because Russia is exporting, but it's not importing. So just to put this very simply, what that means is nobody in Russia needs to buy dollars to buy things because they're not buying anything from the West anymore. So that might sound cool, like, oh, now you don't need, you know, Western, you know, products and stuff. That's not really exactly how it works, though, because what ends up happening, it means that uh, huge parts of the economy, which relied on Western imports, are either going out of business or in serious trouble due to sanctions. They can't import the things they need. And then when you have import substitution, they look to other parts of the world to import what they were just a few months before, you know, importing from other parts of the world. It's hugely more expensive because now Russia is Russian businesses are hostage to the situation. And the alternatives know this, you know, this idea that China and other parts of, you know, uh, you know, uh, Asia, are somehow Russia's best friend and are going to help out Russia in any way they can. No, this is a business opportunity for China. This is a business opportunity for India. They are buying oil at a discount. They are uh, exporting uh, materials with totally, you know, ridiculous prices. It's a problem. And the pro- and again, sort of to wrap up this section of my lecture, uh, starting in 2014, there was this policy that the Kremlin enacted called import substitution, and this came right after the initial sanctions related to the Ukraine crisis. And basically, the idea was we want Russia to be as self-sufficient as possible, or at least have um, trade agreements that are basically um, impervious to Western sanctions. And it failed. It failed almost completely. What ended up happening is that Russian agriculture did quite well and every other section of russia's economy did nothing complete failure and we're seeing this now and it's not a joke we're talking about i read on a daily basis um articles about how there's no spare parts for elevators so they're gonna have to fix uh components for elevator they, they can't import new elevator parts they have to fix the old ones that broke and how this caused problem. They can't fix their airliners, which are rented, by the way, from the U.S. Um, their uh, their whole tr- train network, which is run by Siemens. Siemens is gone. They don't know how to fix this. They're they're, they're also screwed. I mean, I could go down the list. Uh, they even have this is this is a ridiculous but true story. Uh, you know, Russian McDonald's, which so McDonald's theoretically left Russia, but they basically, all of the, the McDonald's stayed. They just rebranded and sold the franchises. And now it's called um, uh, Tasty. That's it. That's the name. It's like, Kusna, uh, I'm not making it up. That's what it's called. It's called like Tasty and that's all, like t- to translate into Russian. In uh, these new McDonald's, they can't import potatoes that they need and Russia's potato harvest wasn't that great last year. They can't even make French fries in some of these new McDonald's. That's which sounds crazy in a country like Russia, which is supposed to have tons of potatoes. They they're literally 
there are literally Russian media reports talking about they, they won't have enough potatoes to make French fries in Russian McDonald's. I mean, that's like, a, it's a silly example, but you know, you can go down the list. And so this idea that if you, again, okay, just to wrap it up, I would advise against looking at the ruble's valuation against the US dollar and making big conclusions about it. Because I guarantee you that there are huge pains and sufferings ahead for Russia economically, just like there will be all over the world. Just like there will be in Europe and the United States and Canada. Right. But it's happening like, in uh, Russia. In India fact, the Russian government has already said. And it, you know, it, just like uh, where, where you said that uh, India was buying Russian oil at a discount, what, what people should understand about that is it's only a discount compared to everybody else's oil. It's actually still more like the same price. Right. <laughs> it's not like anybody's doing right, right. Uh, any, any better from this. Everyone in the world is hurting as um, as as the uh, dollar dominance breaks down because nobody any longer wants to be at the ends of the reach of the you know the the suction of value from the money printing coming from you know one source in the world. And so um, you know uh, people are taking pains to separate themselves from that is the way that I interpret this. And uh, and like you said, um, you know, Russia does not see uh, a lot of, you know, the, some of these Asian centers as like China in particular, which has a lot of power. Russia doesn't necessarily see itself as an ally of China so much as, well, you know, we, we both want to get away from this, right, this dollar dominance. Um, so, you know, here we are. <laughs> we might as well work together. And, uh, you know, that that may create its own um, you know trade partnership that partnership that may last for some era but uh it, it's not nothing like um it doesn't appear to be anything like a strong alliance you know interestingly and uh, a thought just came to my head uh every nation we're talking about right now well american nation chinese nation russian nation or you know the post-soviet space there's a certain version of excep exceptionalism that exists and they're very different. Uh, and that goes back to, Matthew, to your earlier question about the cultural things. So the exceptionalism uh, of the classical American culture is very much about that, you know, manifest destiny, you know, walking on cor corpses and just winning because we're better. You know, Darwinism, social Darwinism. Russian exceptionalism is the opposite of that. And it is kind of like, we are messed up and we are so spiritual because of that it is that spirituality of like being a total loser and being proud of it but it's a very strong cultural element and again it might have changed nowadays just like Riley was saying and that is probably the case just because the americanization of culture did happen but i do remember it very very distinctly how a proverbial average russian would be very proud of being russian as in kind of not really successful but what does it mean like not really successful materially meaning that oh i don't care about the thing and those other people are greedy and horrible and i'm good and i have nothing therefore i'm a good person so riley i don't know if that rings true to you as far as what's happening today but I, had to, I, I, I think that's totally true. I think that you could even describe like modern Russian chauvinism as this sort of um, Russian, uh, the, the Russian chauvinist feels spiritually and morally superior. 
And I think that the American chauvinist just likes having a lot of stuff, you know, and, and feels feel superior because they have, you know, the nice two car garage and, and, and feel that the, the, the material comforts sort of, you know, give give fuel the feeling of superiority um, and that their system must be right and that, you know, their political system must be right. While the Russian system is sort of like we have nothing and that proves that we're better, you know. <laughs> So it's a very different way of looking at things. And so it almost brings us into the territory of competing on moral grounds while having nothing, which is actually suspiciously related to own nothing and be happy, you know, the classic. It is kind of, yeah. yeah. And it's kind of being brought to the West, I think, artificially so, or maybe by virtue of some kind of a long-term existential uh, fairness, but... Nonetheless, because when I was a kid, so people would compete very much, again, on moral superiority, you know, and it's subtle. I mean, like they don't go and start their morning with saying, oh, who is morally superior? Of course not. But there was this thing where it was impossible to compete on the material level because nobody really had much. And the access was similarly not great to stuff. It, I mean, like we had everything, food and lots of food that we had and didn't appreciate is very very expensive at whole foods today so but within the range of what was considered normal to have so you 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 can have access to those things and those other things is just impossible so you couldn't even think about competing there and but i guess human nature is competitive so people had to compete on who is more virtuous and it's miraculously coming back with the whole covid fake community values where people, especially in the, well, I'm in New York, so this is the culture that I know today. I don't really know much about Russian culture today. I know, I know what's happening in New York. So it is that competition about being virtuous and the masculine and the this and the that. And it's very interesting. And I wonder, like most likely that kind of competitiveness on the psychological level was brought very much in a calculated manner because people who are running the show know very well that it works. So. That's just my two cents here. I, I think that you're right about the Great Reset. Um, and and, and I uh, interestingly, I've, I've sort of caught a hint, a whiff of Western propagandists wondering how much of the Great Reset could be pinned on Russia. I, I think that over the past decade, uh, well, you know, going back to the mortgage bond crisis, I think that was sort of the beginning of the end for the dollar. Um, and and uh, even like you know, the Pentagon ran financial war games to sort of see how, you know, U.S., Russia, China, and, and, and other places would um, would develop during uh, the course of something like an economic divorce between the East and the West. And, uh, you know, the, the 2018 dumping of uh, treasury bonds by Russia and, and accumulation of gold, uh, that was actually predicted. And, you know, some people might say, well, it's a no-brainer. It's easy to, you know, um, look at it in retrospect, but it was a prediction made by the West, you know, a, a full decade before it happened or, or nearly a decade before it happened. Um, I, I think that, that Western propagandists be, began to float the idea that, um, you know, perhaps the East has had more influence over our culture than we understand as a way perhaps of hiding um, its flaws and hiding what, what really the dollar empire always was as it looked more and more like the dollar empire would eventually come to an end. 
So I think that the Great Reset and even like the eating bugs and all that is the West's way of trying to normalize, uh, you know, more struggling that it has not built up the moral fortitude to handle because no one knew that that they needed to. No one knew that it was going to be coming, but that the West will have to um, struggle with less material possession, uh, you know, going forward. And that that's part of what the, the Great Reset is all about. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, uh, how did Russia engage with COVID? Because you have this impression uh, among a large portion of folks who are, you know, engaging on topics as we are, who who genuinely seem to not have even asked what what Russia did to their country and their citizens during COVID. I think uh, it's just not often brought up at all. Um, and it's my understanding it, it wasn't all that different than the way in which our supposedly more free Western nations treated us. Riley, can you speak a bit to that? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, just as a sort of preface to this, anyone, I won't be able to really get too detailed into it, but uh, sorry for shilling my own writing, but I actually just a few weeks ago published an article on uh, Whitney Webb's Unlimited Hangout, which is a great website. And I wrote this article called um, resetting without Schwab, Russia and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And it goes through a lot of aspects of, um, you know, what we talk about all the time uh, in the United States and Canada and Europe, you know, concerns we have and just talking about what Russia has been doing in these respects. And this idea that, uh, that Russia has broken away from sort of the Davos crowd. Well, you know, I mean, it's up for debate, but I just lay out why maybe whether or not, you know, uh, these, uh, you know, whether or not this divorce between Moscow and Davos is real, maybe it doesn't even matter because in many aspects, Russia has, like you said, has been doing, has been following the, the Great Reset agenda. It's just, uh, you know, total lockstep with the rest of the world. Um, you're basically right. Russia did respond to COVID in, in many ways. In fact, it, actually more strict than many other parts of the world. Uh, the, I guess the one exception is that Russia didn't lock down as long as other parts, but um, Russia really pushed the vax, the vaccine quite hard. In fact, harder than other, other countries, even in a, in a country like Russia, where people were very either suspicious of these new um, experimental injections or um, were just not... They just didn't really want anything to do with it. You know, they didn't have a strong opinion about it. They didn't want it. And, 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 and Riley, maybe I heard this from you. I, I feel like I heard yeah. that um, that Putin sort of made it look like he was opposed to the vaccines. But then when he went on a trip toward the West, that all the Russian governors, uh, that's when they like push the vaccines. And then and then Putin comes back and just be like, well, it wasn't me. Is, is that sort of how yeah. it happened? Well, oh. Yeah, again, Matthew, man, your questions <laughs> drive me crazy. The, the, the question, the, the debate about where Putin stands on COVID vaccinations is fascinating to me. And in fact, I've even started working on a piece where I just try, I just try to just lay it all out, you know, the, the all on all aspects of it. But basically what ended up happening is that Putin always claimed that he 
thought that uh, vaccination should be um, voluntary, that it should be a personal choice, that it shouldn't be compulsory. So he says this, and then at the same time, Russia, the, literally every region in Russia imposes compulsory vaccination decrees where large sections of each, of each region uh, have to get vaccinated either to stay employed, to go to university, or in some cases, use the healthcare system, you know, either vaccination or negative PCR test, even to go to a hospital. Um, what I would say to anyone who thinks that Russia played it differently than, than, than the rest of the world, just to sort of give a good zinger, is within the first few months of the uh, pandemic, uh, Russia, Russia's um, sovereign wealth fund so basically the Russian government's like, you know, hedge fund or whatever, which is called the Russian Direct Investment Fund, teamed up with this Russian pharmaceutical company called R Farm, which is run by this creepy oligarch. And R Farm teamed up with AstraZeneca. And together, AstraZeneca and R Farm signed all these agreements with Putin's full support, uh, saying that AstraZeneca would produce its COVID vaccine in Russia for export, and also that AstraZeneca and Russia would work together to create a COVID vaccine cocktail, where they would combine one dose of AstraZeneca and one dose of Sputnik V and give it to the world as a gift to public health. And you even have quotes from Putin praising the CEO of AstraZeneca, saying that he's doing amazing work, that he's saving millions of lives, Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, there you go. There you go. It's all there. Um, and this, I mean, this is a topic that we could talk about for another two hours. But basically, I mean, this is just one of many examples of why if anyone is telling you that Russia played it differently, that Russia hasn't been totally, uh, that Russia's healthcare system wasn't totally sabotaged by big pharma or even just domestic um, oligarchs, cynical, disgusting, freak oligarchs, uh, they're mistaken. Russia suffered in 2021, had a natural population decline of more than a million people. It's the worst since World War, the end of World War II. Uh, we're talking about basically in, in population terms and excess death terms, um, a basically socioeconomic catastrophe that hasn't been seen in decades in Russia. And what's interesting about this is that you can trace it back to depriving ordinary Russians of routine medical care because hospital beds were reserved for COVID patients. And these COVID patients were given HIV medications or medications which according to the Russian ministry cause uh, toxic, toxic damage to the liver. You know, they, they, they um, approved, uh, um, what is it called? Uh, help me out here, guys. The, the horrible medication that they were giving to COVID patients in the United States. Remdesivir. Remdesivir, thank you so much. They approved remdesivir in Russia. You tell me that Russia played it differently? You tell me that Russia was fighting the COVID globalist plot? Just, it's just not a serious proposition to make. One final thought. Uh, a recently, a very interesting, a, a great Russian media outlet called Nakanun, which means like on the eve, uh, did this very detailed report of the last of the results of this two years of public health measures in Russia. They found that you could find 200,000 excess deaths that can probably be traced 
to Russians being deprived of medical care because of COVID, because all the medical healthcare system was rerouted to fight COVID and 200,000 Russians died as a result because they didn't have COVID. They had, you know, cardiovascular issues or, you know, something else. So there you go. The, it, the, you know, I think that the numbers speak for themselves. Yeah, you're uh, you're really uh, blackpilling some folks here, but I think it's important. This is Red Flyer Media. Uh, well, damn, Riley's really killing my hope that there was at least one head of state who gave a shit about his people. Oh, please. And- <laughs> yeah, as, as a Russian, I mean, like, doesn't exist. And, and uh, Riley, thank you for saying that. And I actually want to add just a couple of things about the medical system. Two of my very close family members, be- way before COVID, so years before COVID, were pretty much abused in the hospital system in Moscow. And I have strong feelings about that. So that kind of attitude has been going on forever. And from what I hear, it wasn't that prevalent during the Soviet times when there were standards for some kind of humane attitude. I mean, like, I don't know, that's what people say. But from what I know, uh, essentially, you, you have to bribe a doctor. Well, they're conscientious, conscientious doctors individually, but as a system, you would have to either bribe a doctor or you'd be treated like crap. And uh, to the extent of being abused and to the extent of medical treatments that somebody is writing a dissertation about being forced on you. So you either get that or you, do, you don't get anything. You, if you have a side effect, who cares? So cruelty has been a part of life there just like here probably for quite a while so and Liam I'm sorry I think you were saying something and I just gushed into that whole oh no that's okay I I was just I I was just sort of I mean we certainly don't want to leave people feeling hopeless because that's that's not the point I, I think the key and this is something I've learned um a lot over the last two years is that uh, there's no leader, there's no person coming to save everyone. In fact, it's up to each individual to manifest their own salvation, uh, which can be expressed in many different ways. But I think in this, in this time of crisis, I think that's a good uh, active thought to, to, to retain, which is each individual, uh, particularly people in power around the world, are going to make decisions that benefit them uh, the most, which ideally means, you know, not also hurting other people. Um, but whether it's Putin or Trudeau or, uh, uh, you know, Bolsonaro or your neighbor down the street, um, you're going to wind up with uh, people making decisions that uh, may even seem good at first and then wind up being not what it was supposed to be. So to those thinking that Putin in this specific instance is, is going to come save the world, um, I just I, I think what we've demonstrated is there's no basis for that and that uh, this is a reminder to stay the course in our own lives as we navigate the same economic crises that are hitting Russia, um, the same, you know, devaluation of the world's currencies and uh, things that that are uh, far more complicated than I'm able to articulate. But I'm really happy to have perspective directly from uh, uh, people who know what they're talking about. Um, what do you think is going on? Uh, we've only got a few minutes left, but this, this uh, situation, the war in Ukraine, incredibly politicized. And it seems as though you can't trust 
any information coming out from the Western media on the situation, and you also can't trust any information coming from Russia on the situation. What are your thoughts? What's going on? Where, wh- what is this conflict, and is it nearing its end? It's cruelty. Well, it, I think what's going on is cruelty. And it's a classic thing, I think, that... Well, you know the situation where there's a smaller country and different politicians or different as, you know, aspiring people wanting power try to choose an empire to work with, hoping that that strong empire would back them personally and they would proclaim whatever values they can proclaim for personal elevation. I think this is something that's been happening for centuries. This is something that has been happening in the Ukrainian space and also in, well, in the entire post-Soviet space, really, even like in Russia, same thing, where politicians would seek out, like being pro this or pro that and life through their teeth. But really it's cruelty because it's the people who are paying the price. And it, we could uh, theorize that maybe it's a conflict between the West and Russia trying to divide the goodies, or maybe that's all for show because nobody just, nobody cares about people at all, their own, or in other countries, but in any case, it's just cruelty and lying. And obviously the war is used to justify the Great Reset and all that. And we will never know if they're collaborating, the Davis Davis crowd and Russia, or they're genuinely fighting. But in the end, it's just cruelty and lies. Yeah, I'm not certain that um, that the West and the East are, are not actually sort of working together in terms of the Ukraine situation, making it happen even, and possibly just, you know, turning it into a big show. Because when you think about the global chess board and, uh, yeah, let's call it psychopath chess. Um, if the East and the West are to split apart, the, there's almost no way in the world that Russia is not going to try to bring Ukraine into its, its, re, its, um, you know, control realm, uh, because it gives it, it gives Russia so much um, additional power during a very painful transition process. So it, it, it's very hard to, you know, when you just think, you take the human element out of it, just psychopath chess. Um, it, it's hard to imagine that not everyone knew that it was going to happen, which may be the reason why, you know, the U.S. spent the previous decade going in and preparing, um, you know, resistance forces uh, in Ukraine. And uh, and I and uh, you know not to get into the bio labs or anything else. Don't know exactly uh, exactly what that story is. Uh, maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't. But um, it it just seems like a forced move on the board. Well, I want to hear Riley's thoughts. Conflict because I think the plan is for it to go on forever, which is more blood and more orphans and widows and more tears and more crying. Oh, absolutely. And, I, you know. and military contractors. They're the ones who are winning. I mean, like, it's not the only spot on Earth where it's happening. It's just an eternal conflict, very profitable. Yeah, I'm not sure that we won't see a billion deaths worldwide due to the introduction of poverty into the world because of the pandemic and the East-West split. But I think that uh, the people making these decisions want to be able to point toward the pandemic and say, you know, it wasn't anybody's fault. Um, meanwhile, all these decisions that really had nothing to do with the pandemic, I think, have to do with with um, the winding down of the global dollar system. And Riley, I want to make sure we hear your thoughts yeah. on the 
on the situation as well. There's a very diverse, uh, uh, diverse ways this can be interpreted. I want to make sure we hear your stance as well. Sure. Well, I know we're basically out of time, so I'll keep it really, really brief. Uh, the way that I would encourage everyone to look at this conflict, if you really just want to step back and just try to make sense of it, is uh, according to Vladimir Putin in his statement on the morning of February 24th, he said that the reason that Russia was go, uh, launching this military operation was to prevent the creation of a permanent anti-Russia on its borders in a historically, in a part what was historically Russian lands and uh, to create, to uh, basically cre ensure Ru uh, Ukraine's neutrality. And, you know, basically if you read between the lines, he basically wanted to uh, ensure sort of a brotherly unified Slavic union, you know, in whatever form it might have taken. But basically a neutral Ukraine that that would not be used by the West as an anti-Russia. The only thing you have to do now is look at what is the current situation on the map, which, you know, people might, uh, you know, they might misinterpret a little bit, but basically everyone is on the same page here and ask yourself, what happens to the rest of Ukraine? What happens to the rest of Ukraine once this conflict is over? Because Ukraine has not been conquered. Ukraine has not been liberated, whatever you, word you want to use. It's going to be a permanent anti-Russia. It's going to be worse than it was pre-February 24th. It's going to be everything that Russia set out to prevent. It has expanded NATO to Sweden and Finland. This conflict, in so many ways, as things currently stand, has exacerbated the problems that Russia was supposed to solve, that Russia allegedly wanted to solve. So that's something that everyone needs to keep in mind. And I don't care what the pundits on Twitter, these you know smarty pants say on Twitter, this conflict doesn't end in decades. It doesn't end in decades because it's not a mil there's no military solution to it. Because you can't win hearts and minds with, with bullets and missiles and artillery shells. And if you want a good outcome for both Ukraine and Russia, you don't do it through military means. And so that's my take. <laughs> so, yay. Very impassioned and very articulate. And I thank you very much for that. And I, I hadn't considered that perspective that uh, it's, it's simply making the situation as stated by Russia worse. Um, well, uh, I want to, uh, Matthew, is there anything else you wanted to, to bring up or cover before we wrap up? No, um, you know, thank thank you both for uh, coming and just you know exploring uh, a really difficult and challenging set of questions. Um, I'm still still not sure uh, what form of alien Putin might be, or uh, <laughs> or, or you know exactly uh, what planet uh, Russians came from originally. But uh, no, I you know it, it's an interesting exploration of the world between and you know historically we're just given such a cartoonish version of it here in the U.S. I think that. That right now it matters a lot in terms of of how the world breaks down and what relationships will look like. Will look like. Hopefully, those relationships will be you know more driven by us rather than um, you know uh, insane leadership that I that I think seems to be everywhere these days. But um, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of exploration of history since so much of it uh, has been mistaught over the years, and you know, it's good to have. Uh, perspectives. Thanks both. Thank you both for coming and bringing yours. Well, thank Thanks you. Thanks so much it's, for having it's, me. It's a pleasure. And it was the most existentially meandering podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
That's why we do 90 minutes. Gotta let them follow the whole journey wherever they go, those thoughts. <laughs> very, very Russian, very appropriate. <laughs> totally, totally, very, very Russian. So, folks, everyone should go follow um, Riley's work at edwardslavsquat.substack.com and his Telegram channel at edwardslavsquat. Scrolling down the screen there, and I'll also put that in the show's description after we're done. Also, follow Tessa's work at tessafightsrobots.com. Now, does that link to your Substack, or is there no, also... No, my Substack link? is tessa.substack.com. Uh, I mean, there's some in the menu it links, but... Cool. Awesome. Um, is there anything else you guys want to want to say? Anything you want to promote before I uh, exit you from the studio? Just thank you. Thank you for having us. I mean, I think it's really great that, people. you know, I think that we need more of this kind of stuff. Just open, honest, sincere dialogue about these issues, no matter where you come from them. I think we need to do more talking, you know? And unfortunately, I think a lot of times on the internet, you have so much vitriol and mindless stupid hatred i just don't know why it's so stupid <laughs> i completely agree well thank you think, for... yeah it's important to have open conversations that just flow so thank you for providing the platform for that thank you for joining us to engage with it we'll see you guys again very soon um matthew Thanks, obviously another great talk what what else can be said open conversation opens doors opens hearts and minds and that's really what we need to do and red flyer media at least we all get to be in it together right and i think that's in the end the big takeaway um whatever happens next let's keep our heads high but we are all in it together no matter what yeah and some of it is meandering because we're looking for the handles to grasp onto in order to be able to have more of the right conversations and so you know if 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 this is not as as cohesive as uh, many conversations are so be it, uh, you know, you have to, uh, you know, have to have starting points and, uh, Lena, uh, um, and Riley, uh, both have, uh, several good starting points, uh, you know, and, and, you know, we can slush it around like, uh, like soup and see how it tastes No, but, uh, <laughs> it, it, it is going to meander, um, because we don't know enough about the world and we have to, to mine for, um, pieces of truth that we can then, do our best to plug into the big picture. Agreed. Um, well, folks, uh, please, uh, th well, first of all, thank you for watching. This has been yet another awesome roundtable. And if you want to support Rounding the Earth, help us continue writing not just the Substack, which Matthew does, but also this, this roundtable series, the weekly news updates, and other projects in the works. The best thing you can do is go to roundingtheearth.substack.com and become a paid subscriber. Um, very affordable, a couple cups of coffee a month, or yes, and depending on where you are in the world, I suppose. And um, you'll get a lot of great content. Um, the other thing you can do is on our new favorite video platform, Rumble, you have this little area on the side of the live streams called Rumble Rants. And if you want, you can give a comment that has a tip attached to it. Um, so I've got great show guys here, uh, which I'm going to send momentarily. And last but not least, want to plug the campfire wiki where we are accumulating all of our collective research and knowledge on a variety of topics. Um, this is our page on Russia. It is uh, uh, very small at the moment, but that's why we have conversations like this is so we can learn more things to then put on the wiki. So campfire.wiki. 
So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Subscribe to this channel. Subscribe to us on Odyssey and uh, YouTube. We are now on Rockfin as well. And uh, we will be back uh, on Friday for uh, the Rounding the News Weekly News Roundup. And then the following week for another wonderful um, roundtable discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. I've been Liam Sturgis. See you again soon.